This is why small business matters from Northumbria University. Supporting small businesses with the Help to Grow Management Programme. Hello and welcome back to Why Small Business Matters. My name is Matt Sutherland and in today's episode, we discuss the world of technology transfer and explore how ideas with the right support can provide solutions to some of today's most common commercial and social challenges. Intellectual property, ultimately, if you don't have the right piece of intellectual property managed in the right way, can have its value significantly diminished. Technology transfer and making innovative technologies sort of come to life is is supposed to be difficult. They were the voices of Ian Thomas and Andy Walsh, two people who know just how powerful the process of technology transfer can be in growing commercial entities and fulfilling customer needs. Ian is head of life sciences at Cambridge Enterprise, part of the University of Cambridge that supports new models for developing early stage technology that can provide effective knowledge exchange. Ian is also the chair of World Leading Professional Association for Knowledge Exchange Practitioners, Praxis Oral. I'm also joined by Andy Walsh, Director and Academic Liaison at GSK, where he has a focus on supporting GSK scientists to collaborate and innovate with academia. And he also supports the broader knowledge exchange community as an NED at Praxis Oral. Welcome to the podcast. Great to see you both. And thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. Now, I'm looking forward to today because there's been a real appetite amongst our listeners and the broader knowledge exchange community to get some transparency around this term technology transfer. What do we mean by technology transfer? Blimey, what a great question, Matt. So look, technology transfer means many different things to many different people. But in our context, where we're really working with the transfer of the wonderful outputs of the sort of the eclectic research that people do across the entire research base. We're trying to transfer the benefits of that into some form of utility in many, many other places. Now, people always consider that as moving things in a sort of very technical sense from a university to a business, but it may be to a broader broader set of people than that. It may be to, to, to providing advice to governments, it may be providing support to NGOs or whatever. But really, the act of the transfer is making sure that we can capitalize on the technology, uh, which in itself is sort of the, the practical uses of knowledge and insight that we've got, transfer of that to some form of utility. And the transfer process isn't just a blind activity. You can't throw it over the fence and hope for the best. It's a very active process because we produce stuff that is not necessarily fully useful. And the people who wish to receive or benefit from it maybe aren't well placed to fully consume it in that form. And we have to bridge that gap so both parties can benefit and enjoy the fruits of their labor or the fruits of the opportunity. Along that way, it also has to be contractualized. So what do I mean by that? You know, all this is done where there, there are legal obligations, there, there need to be clear obligations, clear undertakings, so every no one knows what is going on because it's not just about transfer of rights it's a transfer of further commitment um, beyond that particular moment and people need to understand that what they're getting themselves into and technology transfer is the whole schema there i think what i can take from that is that there are numbers number of steps in this process 
It's probably far from linear, but it does seem quite binary. You have the technology probably linear? at the found- <laughs> In theory, there's the technology which is underpinning it. And then you talk, Ian, about the transfer and maybe the commercialization of that. And what is this kind of so-called benefit, this utility? Andy, I wonder if I could bring you in. What, what do we mean when we talk about technology? Is this just scientific or is this is this broader? So I think uh, it depends a lot on who you're talking to at the time. Um, and I think from um, from a large pharmaceutical company perspective, it, it really does mean a full gamut of um, novel innovations across multiple sectors. So um, it really is anything that can actually enhance your technical capabilities as a business would be the broader sort of definition that we use. So, and there's many ways in which you can do that. You know, you can be, you can gain better you know, information around design of a, um, a design of a manufacturing process. You could be given a, you know, you could be bringing in a candidate uh, therapeutic. Um, you may have a new analytical technique that all of those would be examples of technologies that allow us to, as a, as a company, to develop um, medicines better than and sell medicines better than we can at the moment. So technology is very much something to be excited about. And I suppose one of the first kind of million dollar questions is when you do have nascent technology, which you perceive has been exciting, it looks like it hasn't been done before. There's a value. How do you check? How do you know that it isn't out there already? So I think from, uh, again, GSK R&D is, a, is an unusual sort of company in many ways in that um, we are very much, um, you know, we're a very large research organization start with people whose job it is um, to be current with their particular field. So we, we have you know, the, the rank and file of our organization are reasonably well placed to actually identify the gaps in what they are, um, what they've got available now and what is coming over the horizon. So to a certain extent, you know, we, we listen to you know, we listen to our people at a network that is out there looking for sector specific knowledge um, and um, and know where the those 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 gaps relate to their current and future strategies. So we've got that area of it, you know, that we know that things like AI and ML have great opportunities. We know that you know we may well have connections already with you know academic leaders in a particular field that we would go, you know, we would be reading their papers and actually going, oh, actually they've made a significant advance and we should follow up with them and find out or collaborate with them. And and so our you know we are very much part of that network of innovation and um and we and we're, and we're hungry for it because we need you know actually developing medicines is hard at the best of times and there's a lot of other people trying to do it um better than we can um so so we really are hungry for any opportunity that will allow us to actually you know do our role in society better and it's it's interesting that you talk about that kind of network and the power of the network and even maybe some local knowledge knowing what is going to be 
the hot topic of what's in vogue. What would you be looking out for? Now, I know within your role, Andy, you're director and academic liaison at GSK, so you have a relationship with universities in this space. What's that like working with, you know, sitting at a large multinational as your employer, but having relationship, professional relationships with universities in this technology arena? I think it's... um... It, it is it, it sort of parallels a lot of you know, a lot of the roles that my colleagues in KE in academia have as well and that we are you know we are all of us that are operating in this space um, I would say we're, we're actually quite two-faced and what I mean by that is that we're actually facing in two directions at the same time and what that means is that you have to have the relationship with people outside the organization um, but also you need to have the relationship with people within your organization and and actually trying to improve the performance and the ability of people within your organization to engage with the outside world is is a key part of the role. Um, the other thing that the, the way in which we work is is actually quite a devolved method in that actually whenever we're we're involved in any sort of engagement with the academic world we do try and make sure that we've got a single point of accountability from a from a a a project perspective so we've identified someone from within the organization who is responsible for that relationship so whether it's a research collaboration or maybe if it's in in licensing of um, a piece of technology we actually have someone who is identified as being responsible for all of the technical aspects. And in that sense, my job then becomes to support them. So yes, I have my own relationships, but actually I am also supporting our business owners in their relationships with the academic world. That's really interesting. So the communication then between those multiple parties is absolutely, is absolutely key, isn't it? To, 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 to actually, well, not even just manage, but to be able to deliver. Yeah, I think that, what I was going to say is that I think the you know the more as you progress through this the you know the, this sort of profession is that you really you are ever increasing in your emphasis on the nature of relationships um, you know the the success or failure of pretty much everything that we do as we work across the interface of industry and academia does come down to relationships and actually trying to understand the drivers on both sides. And um, I think it is very, very hard, particularly for this, the, my, a lot of my work is actually, we access a lot of technology through research collaborations. And if you haven't got a good collaborative relationship between the GSK lead and the academic lead, it's, it's impossible for it to be, you know, to, for a, an effective collaboration to be sort of wrought into shape by people outside whether that's sort of people like Ian and myself sort of wading in um, or senior leadership it's you know they, they, it, it is absolutely key that you get that relationship uh, absolutely right and I think that's a really important skill set but we both need you know both sides of that these that this interface needs to develop yeah right I think a lot of it's on trust isn't it and there is that kind of um famous sort of phrasing of you know it's the hardest thing to get but the easiest thing to lose and it sounds like it's 
really based on those like long-term relationships. We had Ollie Barrett on the podcast, who is one of the most connected people in, in Europe, a super connector. And he talks about the only way of winning new work is actually to be outside of your organization and to to be and be with new parties and, and, and entering those the discussions. And it sounds like you need to be in those fields anyway to get the technology, but it's also an important part is the underpinning relationships in those in those in those areas which are which are key ian if i can bring you in uh, you've of course been listening to to this and um we we kind of have a scenario here where we've got new nascent technology which is which is excited and the kind of large pharma machines such as gsk are excited about them too but there has to be a point where a decision has to be made to protect that new knowledge and i think what we're talking about here is ip intellectual property so Within the technology transfer process, how important is getting the IP in place? I can answer that in one word, vital. I think it's probably more useful to say why, how and when. Um, intellectual, ultimately, the outputs of the sort of the research endeavors that give rise to technology that, that large companies, small companies, startups, investors may be interested in is pretty intangible. It's intellectual property that, that's critical to that. And that's ultimately what's traded at the transactional level, and that's allowed. That's the bit that allows resources to move around. Um, but obviously, then it's as and as and as Andy has has highlighted, it it comes. It's brought to life through the relationships and the doing of by people. But intellectual property, ultimately, if you don't have the right piece of intellectual property managed in the right way can have its value significantly diminished. And so our role in this process is to understand how best to do that in a way that positions ourselves such that intellectual property, as it's further developed, as we get more data or build bigger relationships that mean we get to the point of a transaction, has sufficient value that people actually want to invest in it. And an investor may be a straight cash investor, a venture capitalist into a spin out, may be a licensee, they're investing their internal resources into it. They'll only do that if they believe that subject to all the technical risk and all the other market risk, that the intellectual property won't be a failing part of that chain of critical assets. Um, so yes, we've got to get that absolutely right. But it's sometimes I think what we should remember, we're working at the cutting edge of technology frequently, not always, but sometimes we're dealing with stuff that often is pre-ready for the market the market is maybe not understanding that this 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 whatever it is could be done so our job is to take a bit of a punt frankly and take and which is driven by an imagination and a vision of the future of what might be and and and, and we have to sort of protect it sort of with with that view of of the of the possible not necessarily the the certain and now, that is our role to take those risks because that's what really changes um, businesses, really changes society from time to time. So critically important to get right. And it's interesting from an outside perspective that you can imagine that when you do get that really cutting edge technology, there could be an urge to start to get the IP in place. But actually, I just wonder, listening to Andy, that actually maybe, and I could be wrong, it's something that you do a little bit later on because actually it's the relationships and that trust and that bit of sharing that might get you to the point where you got the confidence in that technology to to go with it and, and, and to then put the IP in place. Am, am I wrong in saying that? Or No, and I think you're right, but it, it's it's very much driven by what's, what is the when is the best time to 
make that protection. And, and there are competing things here because, you know, if you protect early, you've certainly put your marker in the, in the temporal sand for the world. That's great. But technology takes a heck of a long time to develop and your IP protection is basically 20 years. And so the later you leave it, the more protection you might have during its valuable years. And so you you have to make that gamble about what are other people doing the same things? Are we going to take a bit of a risk and go later? Um, it's also to remember that if you file early, you may actually have devalued the technology in itself for two reasons. One is after 18 months, you've told the world, <laughs> but that's that the IP will the B will be published. The world will see what you had, and you may not have actually developed it that far. So at which point you might be in this conundrum where you can't really get as good a value deal out of it. And if you can't get a good a value deal out of it, you may not get a deal at all. If you haven't got a deal at all, you've achieved nothing. So that judgment of when to, to, to protect your IP is important. And people always play, and I think it's not, I don't think it's like this, but they say, do you want a patent or do I want to publish this? And that's the academic mindset. I actually don't think that's real. I think it's I think it's a very easy thing to say. I think it's frankly trite. I think often you could have a very sophisticated conversation and quite a careful Work relationship again. Come back to relationship. Relationship-based discussion about working out when strategically we need to, to 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 protect the IP, but also look after the research career of the creators of the IP. So it's it's a balancing act. Often you can get it wrong. I'm mean, I'm sure you never get it perfect, but you really need to, you can think in a very much more sophisticated way than just can I put my stake in the ground today. That's really interesting. There's a bit of gaming going on, and I imagine how many just to paint the picture how many people are in that are party to that decision how many people you know i'm thinking from the academic side and the legal team and how how many people are involved where you've got to get everyone together where you sort of i suppose push the button and you do register for example the patent when how many people are involved in that is it is it two or three or is it more than 10 i I think that that clarity would be really helpful yeah it it does depend a little bit on the organization um so uh, some some organisations have you know, some quite devolved decision making, and there's panels you have to go through, and, and there's sort of committees to to get sign offs, and that that can be quite a lot of people uh, where they've got this formalized stage gate process. I think in in Cambridge we have a much more devolved point of interaction kind of activity. So what does that mean? Clearly, the creators of the intellectual property are part of that decision-making process. But then at least in our teams, there's one or two people um, who work on that with the researchers. They may bring in a couple of colleagues or get a bit of expert advice if they need it, but it's very, it's a very much more tight-knit team that makes that. And I think that's about, A, there's the understanding, and B, it's about commitment and championing. So can they see the researchers are gonna to commit to what's gonna be a long journey? Can the knowledge um, uh, knowledge exchange professionals uh, who who are doing this do they are they going to commit to it and champion it? Because lots of stuff is is driven beyond reason because it's a gamble and you need people to have that nerve to say I'm going to work on this because I believe it's going to be worth a go. So we have a quite tight knit. You know, so our decision is essentially two people plus the researchers, unless there's some extreme situation. Other places have a stage gate process, which can involve seven, eight, nine, ten people. And actually, I'm thinking, um, you know, at the very start, you talked about 
technology transfer being quite binary. It was my language anyway. Having the technology, having that IP, as we've recently discussed, to, to have everything tight and in place. And then you talked about the transfer. And one thing that's coming to mind when listening to you both is um, when you're thinking about that kind of second piece, which is the transfer out to potential industry and to the end customer, potential end game. Are you working with people then who you already know or are you going out to the market to complete that second phase and dealing with people who you've not dealt with before? It sounds like, and I'm going to put my, it sounds like you could be working with people who you already know based on the emphasis on relationships. Uh, it's both, I think, is the, the, the reality because clearly, you know, when you have a technology, it is only of value to a very small subset of, of, of the, let's say it's an industrial, industrial community. And then there's timing there as well. Now, of course, it massively helps if you work working with people uh, who you know, who trust that you're, when you talk to them about a new opportunity, believe it's likely to be of interest or value and you've got you've got that credibility. If you've curated it, we never, or they believe that you're not going to present something um, that at least isn't worth looking at. But if you're only stuck with the people you know, then you're really restricting your market opportunities. And that's not really fair for extracting the best value for the technology for the people who are potential direct or indirect beneficiaries, be that the creators or their employer, the university, or in fact, the funders or the UK economy or the charity that founded it. So we have an obligation to make the best of that in a market that where we do have good relationships, but we do not have all the relationships. So we certainly going out there, either actively building new relationships in a context of, of a deal we may want to do, or more likely it's about your building preemptive relationships. So you know more people for the next time you have a new technology, you have a broader network of people you can talk to. So no, we don't always do deals with the same people, but it does help to know people hugely. You're listening to Why Small Business Matters. Find out how Northumbria University can help your business thrive through the Help to Grow Management Program, delivered by leading small business and enterprise experts from Northumbria University with the support of leading figures from industry and experienced entrepreneurs. The program supports senior managers of small and medium-sized businesses to boost their business's performance, resilience, and long-term growth. The 12-week program is 90% funded by the government, and the fee payable by participants is £750, and has been designed to allow participants to complete it alongside full-time work. The in-depth, high-quality curriculum supports you to build your capabilities in leadership, innovation, digital adoption, employee engagement, marketing, responsible business and financial management. By the end of the program, you'll develop a business growth plan to help you lead your business to realise its potential. To find out more about the program, the modules, eligibility and fees and delivery dates, go to northumbria.ac.uk slash help to grow. You're listening to Why Small Business Matters. My name's Matt Sutherland. Today we're joined by Ian Thomas, Head of Life Sciences at Cambridge Enterprise, and Andy Walsh, Director and Academic Liaison at GSK. Andy, Ian's talked about at Cambridge Enterprise having a finite number of people who can quite cleanly get the IP in place. When we're talking about transfer, and we're talking about now taking it to industry, potential end customers, who, what parties, what skills are needed to do that kind of second phase of technology transfer? 
Well, I think it, it, it depends on the nature of the technology and how it is how it is being brought in. Um, and uh, you know, we will quite often access university technology essentially through the commercialization vehicles that the universities have set up so certainly i've had more conversations about uh, technology coming from spin-out companies uh, or potential spin-out companies from cambridge since i've moved it to gsk than i have for straightforward accessing of technology through a licensing deal from from the university um so those uh, you know those so to a certain extent it's a case of you know one of the one of the real jobs that Ian and his team have is to actually try and understand well what is the appropriate place to 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 put the technology in order for it to impact on a larger company like GSK and there'll be a whole suite of stuff that actually GSK may be the end user of but will not be the primary recipient of the of the IP. So that's where the spin out companies who are basically going to do an awful lot of that work, which is taking stuff from early stage academic research, making it into a product and then we and then we buy it. And so from a GSK perspective, the, the people that are involved at that are those that you know it's the scientists at the bench who are a bit able to go, there's a new product on the market it would be helpful to our business. We're going to buy some samples. We'll run some evaluations. And we'll just bring it, bring it in. And that may be backed by conversations that have been had with the academic founders or the tech transfer people years previously. Um, if we're actually bringing technology in from a um, on a on a on a IP licensing transaction, um, there'll be a different suite of people there, and it will involve. The, you know, a scientific lead, it will involve people whose job it is to assess technologies and make sure that they are, you know, that they're able to do what, what they propose. There'll be lawyers and um, we'll do the transaction. There may well be alliance managers who have spent their time making sure that all the downstream stuff happens and supporting the relationship. So there's, and there, and there will be a hierarchy of people who make the decision as to whether or not we're actually going to do the transaction. So there's a substantial football team sort of behind the scenes of the people that, the, you know, that, that are actually making that direct contact. And I think what this really does is, is recognize that you're trying to bridge um, a gap between two very willing parties who haven't got quite the right impedance um, set up. And that's for very sensible, very understandable reasons, because research does what it does um, and generates new insight about the world. And then applicability may be, may be imaginable. And people maybe do some for development work at that, but it's still a very long way off almost always I mean, you should never say never but almost always a long a hugely long way off from being ready for the market but it's often usually a long way off from being ready for a company like gsk or any other in, uh, industrial company to ingest and use immediately and so this is where that sort of that gap has has it, always, it will always exist it's actually and it's, it's our job just to bridge it in as efficient way as possible but recognizing what we do whilst critical to the process is driven by slightly different drivers um in terms of what our researchers want and what our industrial colleagues want is slightly more advanced so our job is bring that bring bridge the trl gap which is the technology readiness level gap
And that's where startup companies come into it. It's where translational funding comes into it. It remains where collaborations, where we both have mutual sort of guidance on how things move forward are all extremely valuable. But they then all talk to time commitment, trust, relationships. Oh, and I think we mentioned earlier, getting the IP filed right at the right time such that we can all enjoy the benefits of that and recognize the commitments and resource um, as is that, that each other have put into it or will have to put into it. And you both mentioned startups and spin-outs. And I know a lot of small businesses that listen to this podcast are already trading or they might partner with the university to do a knowledge transfer partnership. So they're already trading and they work with the university to make a step change in their their core business. And I think where their ears will be pricked is that you're talking about a process of taking nascent technology in some shape or form, very thoughtful thinking about how the IP is recorded, and then you're commercialising that. And then you they hear spin-outs. So actually, universities in a way, and maybe it's clunky language, but are potentially SME factories for bringing new firms to market to mobilise this technology. There's no doubt about that. They absolutely are creators of um, S. They don't create the middle. The, the, the middles grow from the S, but we're the creator of small, of, of small companies. There's no doubt about that. And then the trajectory of those small companies in terms of the technology transfer process is variable. And sometimes they'll try and grow themselves to the point where they're trading themselves in extremis. And sometimes they'll see them at the other end as being solely a development vehicle where they're trying to move that technology package to a point where it's developed sufficiently that the likes of obviously we've got GSK on the, on the call here uh, on the podcast would want to buy them a, 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 as, as as a later stage in the development process so yes we're at and so, so they will no longer remain on the market but yes we do we do generate lots and lots of small companies as a community yeah and i think i think from a, a a gsk perspective you know we are interested in um novel innovative tools to support say drug discovery but what we're not interested in is being a manufacturer and development of those tools and assays so we want to buy you know what we be able to do is to access that technology but actually we want uh, you know, we want somebody else to actually provide that to us as a product. So we can be quite often, we might be part of a discussion around what would a good product look like and how would it meet our needs. But that doesn't mean we'd be a licensee. And, you know, the startup is absolutely a vital point in taking that technology out of the university's hands, industrializing it, being able to scale manufacture make sure that it's actually in a fit state where we can just buy stuff off the shelf and use it. And I think that that's, I think, I think it sounds really obvious now, but I think particularly in, you know, in, in the earlier days of tech transfer, I think there was certainly an expectation that um, any technology that GSK scientists had said that they were interested in meant that the scientific um, leads or the inventors thought, great that you know gsk will be a licensee for this and it's like no please go off to you know please come up and give us something you know, what we want is a box with this stuff in it that we can use and once you've got that we'll buy loads um but we're not going to bring it in-house um you know and that's a, that's a trend that has increased as we have increasingly outsourced a lot of what would have been key functions so anything that's sort of peripheral to that you know we would rather actually remained outside and we, we access it 
That's interesting. Yeah. So actually, the picture that you both paint, really, of technology transfer is one that fosters innovation and improves the nation's competitiveness. How does government support this activity? Is it something that it's keen to champion? Is there tax incentives? Is there interventions to support this work? Government is hugely supportive of this. I mean, it's part of the government's agenda to become a science superpower and understand the sort of of technology and then therefore economic benefits from that. And government's really good at supporting that. I mean, people will commonly complain about bits they don't like, but actually if you look at it as a package, it's pretty good. So we fund science at at a very fundamental level and we recognize that blue sky research is critical and exciting things come out of it. We fund directed science um, in, in, from particular calls through, through, through the NHS on NIHR, for example. Or And then we have funding which, the, which comes through Innovate UK, which is actually for funding SMEs in their part of this. And there are varying degrees of tax incentives a, a, along the way that, you know, smaller, smaller organizations get better tax incentives than bigger organizations. And, and there are very good reasons for that. But overall, it's, it's, it's quite a package of, of, of things. And, and it's getting better with time. You know, what we had 10 years ago and 20 years ago was not what we had now. And I'm sure it'll get better as time moves on. So I'm broadly positive of course it can improve of course we'd like more of course we'd like greater commitments but that's part of the process of generating a new ecosystem and working out where where the where the balance should eventually sit andy you've talked about having really good solid infrastructures for being able to identify the technologies that you know will be uh, the type that GSK want to bring in and, and, and run with. There's a huge lot of discussion around AI and machine learning and new techniques that are coming to the market. What's on the horizon then for technology transfer? What are people looking out for? Or even what are people a little bit wary? I mean, I, so we've made a very public commitment to the AI and ML space. Um, you know, we've made a lot of announcements. It's backed by um, some really big spends and it was also a key element in our um, effort, you know, in terms of collaborating with universities. The I think where it has actually impacted on is, is in terms of well, what are we actually interested in outside? It's it's data becomes a very different beast when you're able to apply this, these sorts of analytical techniques to it. So it's 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 really increased the speed at which we are focused on accessing these huge scale data sets and the uk i think is 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 very well placed for that you know we've had a, a long-standing commitment to the uk biobank we're a part of a project to sequence the full genome of every single participant in there which is a mind-boggling sort of five hundred thousand people and um and what that's doing for us actually is a, is a really profound shift in the way in which we investigate um, human biology and build medicines on the basis of that. And we're really starting to work far more in the human system right from the get go. You know, it, it, there's a there's an old model of what pharmaceutical companies used to look like, and that there was like a bunch of chemists. Um, then there were some, you know, pharmas, uh, you know, some pharmacologists with sort of various sort of animal models where they would test stuff out, and then we'd run some clinical trials. 
And actually now we're going right into the biology. We're trying to understand things at a genetic level. So that's where, the, so that means that we've had interest in AI and ML as building our capacity to do that. So recruiting people, setting up engagements and collaborations with um, key people in that space. Plus then that whole access to data sets, committing to the generation and the analysis of those data sets. And I think it's starting to shift the way in which we do things downstream of that. So I think that's been one of the biggest changes that I've seen sort of in the last few years. So Ian, we know that you're head of life sciences at Cambridge Enterprise, which is part of the University of Cambridge. And we also appreciate that a lot of the work that you will be involved in is confidential. But are there any examples that you can share with the listeners on today's podcast? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, so we had the extraordinary privilege to work on um, a company and technology uh, sort of based on the backwaters of the immune system, as was perceived at the time, called Complement. And, and, and you know, that already sounds quite esoteric. Um, but so what value does that have? But it transpired, we had a hugely inspired academic colleague who understood that this may have um, implications for the treatment of age-related macular degeneration. And to cut a very long story short, you know, very good colleague in the team who happens to be Andy uh, on this podcast, but, you know, who's moved on to GSK, worked with, that, uh, worked with that academic in a very profoundly deep way to build an opportunity that then we started working with some venture capitalists to then spin out an opportunity um, to develop medicines that could potentially treat age-related macular degeneration, a serious eye condition that you know, large numbers of older people suffer from and for which basically there's no good treatment. And to cut a long short story short, that company went extremely well, raised lots of money, and we're very grateful to our investors, which is Syncona, um, fantastic investors. But that, that company, um, which we founded, was called Gyroscope Therapeutics, and we it got sold to Novartis in November 2021 for 1.8 billion US dollars, half of which was paid in cash. The rest will be paid on basis of success. But that whole story took about eight years. I forget exactly, but the work that all those parties did, the researcher, 40 years of research, Andy in the team here, um, coupled with investors like Chris Hollywood, thank you very much, Chris, and then a team of people beyond the skill sets Andy, Andy had or I had or uh, took that to a further point, sold it to a massive pharmaceutical company. Whether it's successful or not, that's still in trials. But if it is, that will benefit a huge number of people. We're delighted about that. It's a wonderful story and tells you time commitment, had to get the intellectual property right. We've talked about that and it's still a big gamble. So, yes, still the jury's out, but it was worth doing. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it, it has been a great story. Actually, it was um, even you know, the history of it goes even further back because some of the fundamental work that the academic had done was sort of done in like 1970. And there was a degree of like a eureka moment that he had, uh, you know, many years later, where he actually could realise that this was um, could be applicable to age-related macular degeneration. Um, I think it also speaks to the challenges, though, because this was not, you know, this, you know, the gyroscope solution was not the you know the the archetypal sort of spin out where you have a great academic they become the founder of a new company and then it sort of expands from there it was really built from you know a little bit you know there was the stuff from cambridge there were academics from other parts of the country 
Um, the investors really played a very proactive role at sort of building a, a, a company out of a number of sort of constituent bricks. Um, and I think to me, it, it, it is a great success story, but it does speak to the challenge that we have. And I think anybody who tries to tell you that tech transfer would be easy if only X or Y happened um, really doesn't understand the process because you know what we're trying to do here is you know is really come up with world-changing technologies and it and it is hard it's kind of meant to be hard so you know i think i think it's i think one of my big lessons from that is like yeah that was a success but but actually the the the, the challenge was met with people who were not afraid to overcome the complexity of the situation and I think to, just to add that, I think a it highlights the value of doing fundamental research. You do not know where you, what you will find, but it's also if you're going to do this job really well, and you do understand how you're going to benefit as many people as possible, or stakeholders and beneficiary, patient beneficiaries, or market beneficiaries, or whatever, you have got to empower people to be imaginative and to take intelligent risks and to do it as part of a team where they go out and seek that expertise um, wherever wherever necessary because that is all about giving yourself the best possible chance of success in a world where most things fail but all those failures do not mean you're doing a bad job the huge amount of experience and successes that you've had in the technology transfer field. What tip would you give to somebody new to this area? So I think my top tip is to remember it's very, very difficult, but stick by your guns when you start to have an imaginative idea and run it because if you don't you won't be able to deliver on the difficult that does not mean dogmatic always adapt your position and your route forward as you get new information but if you aren't willing to take that challenge and champion things you won't do the biggest most exciting things so have the courage to do that yeah, I've, unfortunately, it, I, effectively, my, my top tip would be a variation of the same. It's em, embrace the difficulty and the, the challenge and the complexity, because, as I say, I believe that you know, technology transfer and making innovative technologies sort of come to life is, is supposed to be difficult. Um, and and but it but it is. But actually, it is one of the most exciting things that I think you can do as a job. So. You know, it is something that is worth worth doing, and um, and I think always seeking seeking to work in an environment where that is appreciated, um, and and I think the tech transfer environment is has has changed a lot over the years that that I've been involved at whatever level, um, and I think that's slowly starting to come 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 true, and um, you know, tech transfer offices are not supposed um, self-funding on the revenues of their of their deals within sort of four to five years um, or you know that that the actually the the patent protection is only available for the first sort of 30 months of a uh, technology's life that, that people are prepared to play the longer game what are the challenges for SMEs who are hungry to access new technologies that are already So I think traded? one of the big challenges, and I hopefully you've picked it up through some of the answers the discussion in this, in this podcast, is that you need a massive number of skill sets to engage in this type of activity from both sides of the, of the transfer process. So, and not all SMEs have 
access to all of those skill sets on their books because it, it is a resource commitment. It's committing people who you're, you're paying salaries to. Um, and it's also then the risk appetite is you've got to have the right risk appetite. And also small organizations may be doing one only one or if at most a very very few interactions they not really got the opportunity to manage their risk of of uh, of working on new technologies over a portfolio so that does make it much much happier harder to work uh, with those companies and for those companies to do it despite the fact that lots of the outputs from our wonderful research base in this country um, could be directly valuable to them um, after a bit of commitment and integration very very difficult can you tell us about Praxis Oral and what it does? Praxis Oral is an organisation for professionals who are in the KE sector. And that's a broad group of people. And it is there to provide them with access to training as well as access to networks that will allow them to be more effective in their, in their roles. And it's a really important organisation from a from, from as far as GSK is concerned, because not only do our own people access the training support that comes from that organisation, but we feel that it's really important that there is an organisation of that nature supporting the sector across the whole, and particularly for the people who we are working with in universities and other academic institutions. Thank you to my guests, Ian Thomas and Andy Walsh, and don't forget to check out previous episodes of the podcast, exploring award-winning edtech and knowledge exchange with Kevry and solving problems of the future with Joe Marshall and Stuart Wilkinson. And if you would like to find out more information about the Help to Grow Management Programme, go to northumbria.ac.uk forward slash help to grow. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time on Why Small Business Matters.